out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the writer, journalist, Jane Duthers, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all the other groovy stuff. Also, she has written an amazing book titled These Things Happen, The Sarah Record Story. It's nearly 500 pages filled, packed with information, details, photographs and much, much more. I will give you details um, both in the link below and also at the end of how you can buy a book. It's going to be available from her website and also from Tangent Books coming out on October the something 2023. I think it's the 11th. She's also doing a book signing as well with uh, members of Blue Boy. So again, I'll give you more details about that in the link below. But this is the interview. So after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Jane, it's over to you. I am a dyed-in-the-wool will stand on this hill until my last breath, Stephen Duffy. Um, so I have three older brothers who, the middle one, Adam, very, very much influenced my musical tastes. And I used to go into his room. He was about five years older than me. I used to go into his room and pilfer records and tape them when he was out. And he used to get very annoyed because I'd put them back in the wrong place. But he very much introduced me to the magic of Stephen Duffy, the Lilac Time and all Stephen's other amazing musical treats. And on the back of so Stephen Duffy in his pop incarnation did songs like kiss me and icing on the cake and all the rest of it which are you know straightforward pop songs but the b-sides of those singles are just another world altogether and they really give away what he really wants to do which became the lilac time which is this lovely beautiful folky kind of melodic music and it's amazing so yeah the magic of the b-side very very much yes absolutely and he was i think he was part of that birmingham scene wasn't he in the um, late 70s with people like Duran Duran and um, he was the original singer for Duran Duran yes this is true yeah. isn't it which is amazing <laughs> probably hanging out at Barbarella's with um the Taylors who were also cool and beautiful and very beautiful and then he and then Stephen went on to work with Robbie which was quite an amazing he did I'm always staggered by that I've never although I am a very committed Stephen Duffy fan I have a massive collection of Stephen Duffy records under a variety of names I haven't yet found it in myself to buy that Robbie Williams album no it would be just too much so then because just coming to to your latest project which is quite an epic piece of work how did um Sarah Records enter into your consciousness well, so I had this, I have these three older brothers and the middle one, Adam, was very, very influential on my musical tastes. And he realised this and he used to sort of, as well as me going into his room and uh, pilfering records when he wasn't there, he used to occasionally sort of feed some to me. And I remember him coming into my room one day when I must have been about 13 or so. And it was, he brought the Tallulah Gosh album with him. The, the first Toledo Gosh album, not the compilation. And he just said, oh, I thought you might like this. And I put it on and it blew my mind. It was amazing. You know, the screamy bits on Test Card Girl, Beatnik Boy, 
all the rest of it, it was just astonishing. It was only about like 25 minutes long, this album, if that. I played it over and over and over again. And through that, through this, on the back of the record, it said people like Amelia Fletcher. And I was like, wow, she sounds cool. And I went into his room and was like pilfering through his records. And I found these records by Heavenly, which also had this woman, Amelia Fletcher, on. And I was like, hmm, well, it must be the same person. Listen to them. They obviously were. And then these records were on this label called Sarah. And I was like, oh, OK, I like this. I like the packaging. I like the kind of fold out sleeve and the little insert with, you know, these funny little typed stories on. And so I started, you know, flicking through her seven inches and I found more of them by bands called things like The Field Mice and Even As We Speak and, you know, Another Sunny Day and all these other names. I was like, wow. So I brought a collection of these into my room, listened to them all in the evenings and taped them all and then put them all back again. And uh, it was just amazing. And then I became a Teenage Sarah Records fan. I started writing to Matt and Claire and getting these letters back. I've still got a massive, great big envelope full of all these letters and postcards and drawings and whatnot that I got sent. And yeah, I started buying my own Sarah Records and building my own collection. And it was just, yeah, that's how it all started. That's how it influential started. big brother. That is yes. I had a big brother that I used to do very similar things. Mm-hmm. Actually, he'd forbid me to go into his room to look, look and listen to his records. So obviously, you you know, when you're a little bratty brother, you know, you wander in there when he's not about. And I mean, it does teach you how to be very de- devious and and sort of thorough with your crime of going into it, your brother's record collection. It does and, and have it because he used to keep them in a beautifully, meticulously alphabetized and very. And and then kind of within his alphabet alphabetization yes. there was other <laughs> subcategories within that and so i used to slightly pull the record that was just before it out to an angle so i'd know where to put the other ones back in and little things like that oh, but he always a... knew he always knew. he would then come and complain say i'd put things back at the wrong angle or it was you know sticking out two millimeters or something so yes because this was with me, this was in the 70s, and my brother was seven years older, and he was into prog rock. So it was, I, I have a bizarre kind of knowledge of, yes, Genesis, Wishbone Ash, this, and the solo work of Rick Wakeman. So it's kind of weird. But I was very young, and I was very curious <laughs> of these records and these these amazing covers and, uh, yeah, gatefold sleeves with these amazing images by people like, you know, the artist Roger Dean. So, um, and he it's had very- the- Sorry, talking no, about no, it's all right. I was just he, gonna say it's it's really formative as well. It's because we're talking about a time when there's no internet and there's no other way. You see something that's interesting and you want to know more about it, and you can't just Google it and get the answers. You have to put the effort in and you have to put the hours in to try and go, okay. Well, I remember reading um on one of these little inserts that came in a in a Sarah seven inch, and it said something about Jean Cocteau. And I had, I was about 14. I had absolutely no idea who Jean Cocteau was. I just presumed that was one of the Cocteau twins. <laughs> and uh, because I'd heard of the Cocteau twins and it's an unusual name. And of course, there was no way for me to Google it. And so for years, I just presumed that the Cocteau twins included someone called Jean Cocteau. It would have made uh, sense. You could have put that rumour around for, for, and got away with it. <laughs> sort of, impressed yeah. all my school friends. Yes, this is true. And at the time, yeah, I mean, it is kind of interesting that pre-internet, we didn't even have a landline until the late 70s in the house. But it was things like, um, yeah, just records he had other than those ones, which were a bit, you know, I think, God, why weren't you into better music? But he did have Goodbye Yellow Brick Row by Elton John and also Sergeant Pepper by the Beatles. And and I sort of curiously would play these records, including side four of 
Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. And and the songs were amazing and they still are amazing songs. And um, but the discovery, you know, of having, you know, because it was all vinyl, you know, having to put the next record on and you know, the next side and thinking, oh my God, they're just all unknown records here, uh, tracks. And um it's really exciting. I remember when I first got into Neil Young. And like in my early 20s, probably. And then suddenly discovering that there was like hundreds of old Neil Young albums to work my way through. And it's like, where do you start? And it was just such a treat. I had all these exciting new albums to discover by this brilliant artist. And every single one of them was great. Yes. And you can. Yeah, I know. It was fantastic. And you keep linking it to different bands and different scenes and Woodstock and Crosby, Stills and Nash and Buffalo Springfield. It's just it is very exciting discovering that kind of music, isn't it? Or any music at that age. I know when David Bowie and Lemmy were born in the same year, when they were ever asked, you know, what their musical influences were, they both said Little Richard and then, you know, Elvis Presley and Buddy Holly and people like that. But as Lemmy said, you know, you you when you're 16 or that type of age, you can't do that again. You know, that is the music that is right in your DNA. And it's so true. You know, there is something and I sort of allude to it a little bit in the book, but there is something about being a teenage music fan and whatever it is that you're a fan of, whether it's Sarah Records or prog rock or whatever it is, there's something about that teenage enthusiasm that you can't, like you are just saying, like you can't ever recreate ever again. You could discover a band right now that suddenly that you've never heard of and you suddenly think they're amazing, but your enthusiasm will never, ever match what it would have been if you discovered them when you were 15. I know. Buying a ticket for a gig two months ahead and just playing one that one record yeah. for two months. And bizarrely, the next day after seeing the band, you think, actually, I'd never want to hear that record for another year now. <laughs> but, one, you know, but that religious experience of seeing them walking on that stage... You know, yeah, you can't do that when you're older. You're just thinking, the oh, first come on. Time, <laughs> the first time I went to see Stephen Duffy live, I just, it was, like you said, it was just like seeing the Messiah walk onto the stage at the Fleece and Birkin in Bristol. And I was just, I couldn't believe, like my knees went all wobbly. I was like, oh my God, he's real. Yes, we're breathing the same it. air virtually. It's just, yeah. it's a cosmic And especially connection. in a venue that small, you pretty much were. <laughs> Mr. Mr. Duffy. God, he's such a sweet chap, isn't he, actually? He really is. He messages me on Instagram now. So he's lovely. I know. And from it, him it yesterday, makes... it was just like, it makes me heart warm. Love him. That's right. So then just anyway. before before you get to writing this book on Sarah, what do you then have a, a life of um, writing and journalism and creative writing? Yeah, I do. So um, I'm kind of just like a, a writer. That's what I always wanted to be. I was one of those lucky people who when I was at school, I just always knew I loved writing. I wanted to write. Um, I was pretty good at it, if I'm allowed to say that without sounding arrogant. <laughs> um And uh, yeah, I always wanted to write and I always wanted to write for magazines. I didn't ever want to be a news journalist. And even though I massively loved music, as we've just been talking about as a teenager, and I used to read Enemy and Melody Maker every week and Smash Hits as well. I really loved Smash Hits. I never, ever wanted to be a music journalist because I felt that if you felt that passionately about something, whether it's music or whatever else it might be, and then that becomes your job, it would take the fun and the pleasure out of it. Because for me, music was all about escapism and having fun and relaxing and 
if that then becomes your job, I kind of thought it wouldn't be wouldn't be as enjoyable anymore. So um, I remember a, a careers day at school and they sort of said, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you were supposed to say you wanted to be a doctor or a vet or a lawyer or something. And I said, um, like an obnoxious little brat, <laughs> I said that I wanted to meet famous people for a living. And they said, oh, that's not a job. <laughs> and then I managed, <laughs> I grew up and I went to college and then I trained as a journalist. And after that, I got a job working at magazines like OK and Heat and New and did meet famous people for a living. Oh, and I felt 80s. like going back to school and saying, you were wrong. <laughs> you can have a job meeting famous people for a living. And it's really good fun. <laughs> but yeah. um, it stops being fun after a while. And uh, and then you have to grow up a little bit. But it was really good fun for a while. Mm. Um, and then so that was when I lived in London. Now I live in Bristol. And um, I've kind of I've done all sorts. I've worked for various magazines and newspapers and whatnot over the years. I've written I've written six books. I've written a number of books called in the series called The Women Who Built Bristol, which are collectively about putting women back into the history books because I got really annoyed by the fact that we're largely only ever told the men's history of anywhere. And um, living in Bristol, that's an area that I focus on and know a little bit about. So I've written two books. There will be a third, each of which has stories about 250 amazing but largely overlooked women from Bristol's history. So it's sort of potted biographies of those and they've done really well. So that's great. And I've written various other books. I used to run an all-female comedy club called What the Frock um, for a number of years. And so I wrote a book um, similarly to the Women Who Built Bristol ones, uh, collecting together. Because again, I got a bit annoyed with people going, oh, well, there aren't really very many funny women. You've got sort of French and Saunders and Joyce Grenfeld and that's it. And I was like, that's just not true. So I put together a, a really big book, collecting together loads of amazing women comedians from both sides of the Atlantic over the last hundred years or so. And uh, various things like that. So I've done all kinds of projects, but now largely I'm a writer, an editor. I do some ghost writing for someone and um, yeah, I do all kinds of projects. But I'm really lucky that, yeah, I'm a, I'm a full time writer and editor these days, which is is the dream for me. It's the dream ticket. So then as, as we sort of wander back into the 80s with indie pop, which was very exciting at the time. So there's all these very interesting little labels, you know, from Rough Trade to um, Some Bazaar. Then you had, you know, the pink label and 53rd and 3rd. That's as far as my memory is going to go here. Um, but then Sarah Records as well. So with Sarah, which is one of the most interesting labels, isn't it? Because it sort of keeps building and building every year. Because um, most labels have their moment and then it's gone. And then we get a bit nostalgic. But Sarah Records have had a film about them, haven't they? And a book as well. And then... Well, they've had... This is the second book. This so is the second book, isn't it? Yes, I know. Because <laughs> was it Michael... Michael White? Michael White yes, wrote the Pop Kiss book. Yes. Lucy Dawkins did the film. And they both came out sort of within around a year or so of each other, I think, around 2015, roughly. And uh, yeah, and I've heard talk of someone else who's interested in doing a film about them as well in a different vein to Lucy's. So I don't know if that will get off the ground or not, but I have heard talk of this. Yes. So yeah, it's really interesting how this label that closed nearly 30 years ago still keeps rumbling on and on and on and on. And also, I think what's interesting is all the reissues that keep coming out like blue boy have just put out a, an amazing package of 
their collected singles over the years. And you've got like with Precious Recordings of London that Nick Godfrey does, yeah. who's not just Sarah Bands, but several Sarah Bands have been included on his roster um, of the Peel sessions that come out and the beautiful editions that he does. And again, these are so popular. And then earlier this year, we had two gigs in London that Heavenly, if Sarah Band did, which sold out really fast, even as we speak, came over and did a gig in London last month. Again, that was a packed out show. So, you know, these Sarah bands aren't going away. People still want them. And like they the want... Bridge compilations that Skep Wax are doing with um, the current music from bands who were on Sarah back in the day, but what they're up to now, that, you know, they're doing a second one. You know, it's people love it. It's not going away anywhere. So, yes, great. It, is, it is truly brilliant. So, so, yes, after Michael's book and the film. So, when did the idea of writing a second book on this label sort of appear? I mean, I did, was it one of those moments where you just had a great night and, and got very excitable and thought, I'm going to do a book on Sarah, and then woke up the next morning and went, mm, not sure that's such a good idea, but then ran with it, obviously. Did, how did, it, did it come in a dream? Well, it kind of came in various different forms. The book started off as something completely different. It started off a long, about 10 years ago, as I really wanted to write about being a teenage fanzine writer in the in living in a village in the middle of nowhere, having no internet because it didn't exist, having no car because I was too young to drive and having, you know, living in a tiny village where nothing happens. So um, like the nearest town to me was Bristol, but that was a good hour, hour plus drive away. But I didn't have a car anyway, so it was beside the point. Um, and I wanted to write about that and what that was like and working in an indie record shop, which is still the best job I've ever had. Um, and then so I started doing that. And then that grew into a very indulgent long chapter about teenage bedroom culture and the spaces of which I still would love to write one day. There's a little bit about it in the book, but I had to keep cutting it down. Um, and the importance of bedrooms to teenagers, particularly girls. I know Angela McRobbie's obviously written about that, but that has been long updated since. And then this book that I started writing included just a chapter on Sarah Records, because that obviously was an important part for me of being a fanzine writer and, and being a teenager and having that bedroom culture. And then as things progressed, it the Sarah part of it started getting bigger and bigger and bigger and taking over. And I guess it was probably around the time, I think it was 2015, the Arnold Feeney Gallery in Bristol did a really big um, exhibition and retrospective weekend about Sarah Records and I was walking past it one day I didn't know this was happening I was walking past the Arnolfini one day and I just saw this poster outside advertising the Sarah Records weekend which was that coming weekend and I was like wow god yeah I used to like Sarah Records yeah I wonder what ever happened to them and I managed to get myself a press ticket and went along and I bumped into Claire and Matt and I bumped into Amelia and Rob and all kinds of other people who I hadn't seen for decades or really given, you know, a lot of thought to in the kind of possible way. Because as yes. you said earlier, you know, you get passionate about something and then you move on and life happens and, you know, you get married and have families and all this other stuff goes on. And, you know, you get other interests because it would be weird to only have one interest for your entire life. I think that's slightly unhealthy. But anyway, it was a really great weekend. Some of the bands were playing. I remember the Orchids and Secret Shine and Catenary Wires were playing and it was just a really fun night. And it was the the uh, the premiere of Lucy's film as well, which I loved watching. I've seen it numerous times since. I did a, a Q&A after one of the screenings with Matt, I think the year after. 
And um, it just got me back in touch with Matt and Claire and everyone as well. And I just remembered what a lovely time it was. And I guess it was a sense of nostalgia and harking back to that, you know, teenage life when things are a lot easier and you haven't got to worry about mortgages and overdrafts and all those kind of boring things that grown-ups have to think about. And um, yeah, it all just spiraled from there. And then the classic thing of during lockdown, I'd had this idea for a while simmering away in my head for a year or two, but I was doing other things. The women who built Bristol books were happening and they were quite big. And I was just completely tied up with those and with work and other stuff. And then lockdown happened. And I thought, well, this is a great time to start doing it because everyone I want to speak to is just sitting in their house with nothing else to do. They can't go on tour. They can't go to work. They can't do anything. So I started contacting people and said, can I speak to you over Zoom? And pretty much everyone, only two people said, no, not for me. And both of them had very good reasons for that. Um one of them had, uh, anyway, I won't go into that, but uh, yeah, and it, but actually it was, for me, it was a really lovely project to do during lockdown because I think like all of us, I was getting a bit sick of my own family and talking to the same very small number of people in real life every single day. And it was a treat, you know, several times a week to talk to someone completely different for a couple of hours about something completely different. Yes. And it's a really, really enjoyable thing to do. Yes, I'll, I'll ever, yeah, small bubbles were just, just you know, getting confused, weren't they? they? They were tiny and you didn't know whose <laughs> bubble you were in and whether you were sort of swapping no. bubbles. It was all very oh, tricky. That's great. So how did, because the book is incredibly dense with so much information, isn't there? There's, it is a the, big, fat book. It is a very big book. on a podcast, but I'm waving an enormous it copy is, It you. is an extraordinary book with so many interests and facts and figures. Phenomenal amount of pictures and flyers, which is also... 256 pictures. And do you know, that's not nearly all of them. People right. were really, really generous. I did this over Christmas last year. And in my naivety, I've never done picture research before. And in my naivety, I thought, oh, it'll take me a day just to sift through. I probably had about 500 pictures, maybe 600, that various people had sent me over the uh, the last couple of years, whether these were official photos, some professional photographers very kindly let me use their photos. Most of the photos were ones that, you know, either keen amateurs had taken or fans had taken or the bands had taken. Um, and they were just, you know, they're not on professional quality cameras, a lot of them. They're just on, you know, you remember the good old days. You'd have your funny little Kodak camera and you'd take a picture and then you'd send it off to Boots. And, you know, yes. a week or two later, you'd get it back and you'd hope no one had blinked, that kind of thing. And a lot of them had the back of someone's head in the photo if they're at a gig, that kind of thing. Yes. So a lot of them we did weed out. They were lovely to look at. Um, so there was a lot of weeding out. But, yeah, there's masses and masses of photos and gigs, but there's masses more as well that are sitting on a on a hard drive in this drawer that I'm oh, tapping. Oh, wow. Right My God. That's incredible. Because Sam Neill, another person who's mm. obviously very good at archiving pictures, he's he's done quite a few on Sam Neill's books are fantastic, aren't they? Yes, he's put them together. So what's kind of what's also interesting is this kind of a, a passing of time to start to sort of analyse something that happened in the 80s, which is a part of the history that hasn't really been spoke about that much until now. Because I think a few years ago there was a book, I think it was the Manchester University Press did one on fanzines, didn't they? 
and Claire has a chapter in there which is interesting. Oh, um, torn, ripped and torn. Ripped and torn, which yes. I which I was going to try and find before yes, speaking Claire to. Yes, Claire wrote a chapter in there about her fanzine. And then, interestingly, James Brown brought his book out um, last year, which the first half is amazing because it's about his indie world in the eight, in, yeah, in the eighties. <laughs> and then, yes, and his and this lovely moment with Claire. So, so what? Yeah, so it's just interesting that three decades has passed, roughly, possibly a bit mm. more, and then suddenly this kind of interest and and kind of fascination, and sort of looking at the culture quite differently again. So, um, yes, we've we've been blessed with all these kind of films and books that have been happening. Did you have, or do you have, a theory behind you know the the current interest in the eighties? Not because the eighties was a bit told by people like Dylan Jones, and it was always you know the Blitz Kids, Spandau Ballet, Live Aid you know Trevor Horn production and then suddenly you go no that wasn't my 80s at all Dylan but... well, I think it kind of happens cyclically like when you I remember about 10 years ago when suddenly the 90s became really fashionable and suddenly you know kids who weren't born in the 90s were starting to I don't know wear 90s type clothes and their tracksuits and their um what were they called that the All Saints had? Those kind of like cargo pants. Oh, and yes. And suddenly, and I think it just happens that after a certain period of time, we kind of forget all the rubbish bits. Like there was plenty in the 80s that was absolutely rubbish. You know, the minor strikes, Thatcher, you know, all this stuff, massive unemployment, uh, massive homelessness, AIDS. I think there was a lot not to want to remember and go back to in the 80s. But it was still, you know, a childhood for a lot of people. And as I said earlier, there's a lot about childhood that people like to remember. You know, not everybody, but a lot of people like to remember their childhoods because it is a time when life is less complicated and, you know, life is easy. And Yes, nice. this is true. But it's kind but what, of... It's, yeah, I was going to say that what's also quite interesting, because obviously young people go, oh, my God, the 80s were amazing. And But actually reminding everyone that actually those things that you said just mentioned there is kind of important to put into the narrative because otherwise it's like, oh, yes, the 80s must have been brilliant. It's like, no, we all thought we were going to die of a nuclear war, actually. <laughs> well, I kind of talk about that a bit in the book because the book's very much set in Bristol. Bristol is a character in the book. And there's a chapter early on in the book about Bristol. And I think it's important to mention this because, A, when people mention the Bristol sound, they largely mention people like Tricky and Massive Attack and Porter's Head, which is fine. But that's not the only sound. You know, there were plenty of other bands that also came from Bristol and also the Sarah Records scene. And although only two of the bands on Sarah were from Bristol, Sarah itself very much located itself in Bristol, you know, from the photos that they used on their on the record labels themselves to the names that they gave the compilations to all kinds of other things you know they very very much located them i've got a postcard right here that's going to go with some of the books which is a collection of temple meads pictures from the postcards that came with a series of the records and um so i think that's very important but also i felt it was important to just briefly mention some of the other stuff that was going on at the end of 1987 when claire and matt were coming up with the idea for Sarah Records, you know, they'd both had fanzines, they'd both put flexies out, and then they got together and thought, you know, let's put some hard records out, let's start a record label. 
And but I think it's important to locate that. So I talk in the book about, OK, the summer of 1987. This is what was at the top of the charts. This is what was at the cinema. This is what was going on in Bristol politics. This is what was going on in national politics, because I think it's important to set that scene into the world that they're coming into. And as uh, has been mentioned before, but the Enterprise Allowance Scheme, which Matt originally signed up to, which helped fund Sarah for the first year or so, and which lots of other people did, like Martin Whitehead, who used to run the subway organisation. He also signed up to it. And loads of bands were on it at the time. It was pretty much the only good thing that came out of Thatcher's government was this scheme that allowed people who had an idea to fund themselves for 40 quid a week, you know, which isn't a lot, but it was enough to scrape by if you didn't want to do anything too extravagant. And it meant that they didn't have to get, you know, a proper job at inverted commas and they could spend their time working on, you know, their band, writing their songs, writing their fanzine, trying to run their record label, whatever it was. And they were funded for, you know, to a certain extent in order to see if that was viable, which I think you know, it was pretty much the only good thing that that government did, but it was a good thing. It's a, it, yes, genius. God, I mean, you know, indie pop was kind of based on that enterprise allowance scheme. You know, mm. you had to have a thousand pound in the bank account, which I always was a bit curious how people managed to do that to sort of prove to the, um, you know, social security. And then suddenly, you, you know, you didn't have to do restart interviews anymore. I think 40 pound was a little bit more than just being on the dole, but you had your housing benefit and council tax paid so it was one year of yeehaw let's go <laughs> probably to to a happy hour in the pub but that's just details isn't it so what with so with sarah records which is this kind of curious and interesting label which was both loved and hated in equal measure there was no grayness in sarah in their in their little universe with but it was run by these two characters claire and matt so so what's um how did they develop this because they had no experience of business did they they didn't even know what a checkbook was and what a receipt was and yet they they sort of had this kind of personality a bit like you know you had rough trade with um jeff uh, travis and then you had you know people like uh, was it steve-o from some bizarre alan mcgee creation records and then and then these two curious characters um so what was special about them and, and how did they develop such an amazing brand and business I think they're a really interesting partnership. I mean, Claire was about 19 when they started the label. You know, she'd just started, or maybe she was in her second year at university and she was studying economics or something financial, something something very smart to do with numbers. I can't remember exactly. I think it was economics. And um, Matt, had gra- he was a few years older. He'd already graduated and he had his experience of working, of, you know, running his fanzine and running, helping to run the Sha La La label. Claire had obviously done her own fanzine, which had included her own flexi as well. So they had that combined experience. And no, they didn't really have any business knowledge that I'm aware of, um, but they just had good ideas. And I think they looked at what other people were doing. You know, there's an interview with Claire talking to Mark Goodyear on Radio One back during the Sarah days. And he's asking her about the label. And she says something like, well, we just looked at what everyone else was doing and we thought they're all doing it wrong. We don't like what they're doing. So we're going to do it this way instead. And I think that's a lot of what the music press hated about them, because the music press really, really did hate them. And again, there's a whole chapter about the music press in the book. Um, and I was pleased, actually, as well as speaking to people like Pete Perfides you know, and, you know, Kitty Empire and people like that who liked the label and said nice things about the label. I was also pleased to be able to speak to um, David Quantic and Simon Price, 
and I was very amused that both of them still loathe and detest the label. <laughs> and I found that I, I admired their loyalty to their absolute hatred for this thing that had endured for so long uh, and kind of respected it in a way. Um, but yeah, the the absolute uh, disregard that the music press had. But I think the, mu the music press didn't like Sarah Records because Sarah Records didn't need them. You know, they didn't like, you know, they bought a few adverts over the years, but on the whole, they didn't give money to the music press. And therefore the music press was like, well, how are you functioning? How are you doing well? How are you continuing to sell all these records without us? And again, the same largely with the radio, you know, they had some of their bands had peel sessions, but there weren't that many over the years. Um, and, you know, three of them were done by Even As We Speak, who, who were great. But they kind of monopolised the, the Peel session quota for Sarah Records bands. But they didn't really need radio on the whole. And still, and it was the quality of the records. You know, people would send off, they'd enclose a cheque you know, to cover, say, the next 10 releases. They wouldn't know what the 10 releases were going to be, but they trusted Claire and Matt that those 10 releases would all be good quality because they trusted Claire and Matt's taste and their judgment. And I think that also puts um, a level of responsibility on Claire and Matt not to let anybody down, because then if they did put out a rubbish record, then people were going to stop doing that and the business wouldn't work. And I think it's really important that when they reached Sarah 100, Claire and Matt thought, you know what, enough's enough, you know, it's time to call it a day and move on and do something else. And I think it's really important and respectful that they decided to do that rather than thinking, do you know what, no, we're not selling so many records, you know, things aren't going so well. They just thought, no, enough's enough, on to the next thing. And that's yes. what they did. That's and they, they very clearly said, you know, no reprisals, no box sets, nothing. And they've stuck to that. Yes, it's amazing. There was a lovely interview with uh, Claire Matt with John Peel, wasn't there? And he was asking them about what the release was going to be for 100. And they didn't tell him, but obviously for a reason, because I think their 50th was a board game, wasn't it? Yes, Seropoly. Seropoly. But then it was an interesting period when Sarah starts, isn't it? Because it's obviously the idea, I say obviously, it might not have been that, but, you know, about 86, 87. And, um, you know, for me, indie pop is the perfect period between 83 to 87. This is just a vague idea, but that's the years of the Smiths. And there was such a chapter in that indie pop world of, you know, this band. And then the Smiths break up. And then ecstasy comes along. Then there's this dance scene. And then you had the Seattle scene. And then a bit of, I don't know, people like My Bloody Valentine and Silverfish and the Faith Healers. So the Sarah bands are quite interesting in the sense there's no, they don't fit in particularly to any of well, what you mentioned with the journalist about, um, yes, how they hated them because they didn't they didn't seem to need them. But but yet they were there at the same time. And for those 16 yeah. to 18 year olds, those those kind of the sound of Sarah Records does have a certain vibe, doesn't it? I think the um, the lovelessness of a lot of Sarah Records, you know, like the listen to the field mice, you know, listen to another sunny day. Just um, the sadness, the heartbreak, the why don't you love me? Why doesn't she see me? Those kind of records, I think, really resonate to, you know, a misunderstood, sad, sort of 15, 16 year old fan sitting at home in their bedroom listening to records going, yes, this guy in the field mice, he understands what I'm going through. He understands the pain that that girl doesn't love me back and all the rest of it. But also similarly, do you remember Action Painting? On yes. Yes. 
And Lee from Action Painting went on to play with Shampoo. Do you remember them? The pop. Oh, yes. Bubble gum, even. Pop (laughs) Punk's Shampoo, who I absolutely loved. And he would play with them. There's an amazing um, clip. It was on, remember, on Channel 4, not Channel 4, sorry, BBC 4 on a Friday night. They do the old Top of the Pops. Yes. And uh, there was one a couple of weeks ago, and it was Lee from Action Painting playing with, playing Trouble with Shampoo, which was great. It's like, wow. Him from Sarah Records is on top of the pops tonight. That's fun. And he, but he was also in action painting at the same time. And he was talking about, because then, then he had all his Britpop friends who he'd met in London and through Shampoo and his connections with them. And so that got them access to a better recording studio in London. But he was like saying, oh, you know, we're in this studio and there's people like Shed Seven and Suede and Pulp wandering around. And it's just, oh, I hate it. He hates, you know, it doesn't fit into his attitude and his ethos and it's not really what's true to them. And I think that's quite interesting. Yes, absolutely. And and one thing that you mentioned about journalists hating the band there was also a horrendous kind of review, uh, the singles being reviewed. And there's one by Ivy, isn't there? And a guy who was in a band called Therapy yeah. reviews them. And that's that, you know, especially this week with the, the yes. Russell Brand experience, you know, news that we've had. He's talking um, about Spencer, the singer, the female singer from Ivy and how, well, A, he's talking about however it's true who largely was a fan of Sarah Records and did support their music. Um, how if he had been reviewing the singles that week, he would be, you know, tossing himself off under a table somewhere in excitement at these feverish um, girly vocals, but also saying that, oh, this this record is so awful that this woman should have a hot poker shoved up her, which is awful. And I spoke to Spencer during um, the course of writing this book. And even that, like she said at the time, she was, you know, really upset about it, understandably. And she said it felt like literal violence. You know, it was a really awful thing to see. And it really upset her, you know, for a good week or two. You know, it really stuck with her, which you can completely understand, especially, you know, you know, she was a young woman. And to read something like that about her completely unjustified was just just appalling. Yes, I think that's that slightly macho humor, isn't it? Which you know not really humor but you know that sort of let's be really brutal and horrible and but that's what the music press was doing at the time there was that kind of you had people like Stephen Wells writing at the NME and Stephen Wells you know if you look at his website you know obviously he's not around anymore but he was uh he called himself a a ranting poet and a stand-up comedian and that's really what he wanted to do by his own admission he knew nothing about music he thought that Daphne and Celeste who were two you know very poppy kind of top of the pop smash hits type singers he thought that they were the height of great musical talent and so he hadn't got a clue about music but he enjoyed trying to court controversy and saying things like oh god this record sounds like um my dog spunking into a food mixer you know and stuff like that you know all of his reviews had to have male yes. bodily fluids in them or they had to have you know really grotesque violence imagery in them none of them really mentioned the music or the people involved at all but they just were short stories for him to try and show off and get himself a publishing deal 
Yes, I know. This is this is so horribly true, isn't it? And I suppose that's when you it's always good to sort of highlight that because I think it can get completely forgotten, can't it? In the nostalgia that the music papers have all disappeared or I don't know, in some sort of flux, actually a lot of people didn't miss them really because they you know their careers got sort of savaged and and beaten quite badly by them and and you know shaped them you know there was a band who I interviewed recently who were based in Norwich at the UEA and again the it was the melody maker review of their third single that kind of made them feel completely wobbly and they sort of didn't know about what to do next because it was so savage and it was kind of I suppose it was kind of unnecessary at the time it, it was like you didn't really need to write that and I'm not sure if you're even that close to the truth what you've written so um well there was one Sarah band Gentle Despite who decided to split up because they couldn't take the savagery from the music press anymore they got a bunch of really nasty singles and live reviews that were just unnecessarily cruel and they just thought we can't it's too stressful it's too upsetting it's too awful we're quitting which i think is really really sad that the music press could do that that they had that much power but yes. at the time they did there was no internet there was nothing and at the time if the music press liked something then that made it a hit you know as long as the music press and the radio as well liked something it was a hit whereas now the music press is just kind of like this what what does exist of the music press it's just kind of this anodyne fawning thing that always likes stuff because they still want to be sent press releases and promos and free copies of stuff. And so they always like it. But largely you just have stuff like Uncut, which, you know, is fine for what it does, but it doesn't really concern itself with new music. It concerns itself with box sets of Bob Dylan and Kate Bush. Yes. It's really that informative about what new bands are doing. You know, I like Uncut. I think it's a good magazine, but it's not it's not a new music magazine. No. There is anything like that but you do have websites now and blogs which do cover that and are a bit more honest I think but... there was I think there was the gatekeepers weren't there there was the three music papers you know like Sounds Melody Maker NME and possibly Beckle Mirror and then you had you know John Peel Janice Long Kid Jensen which were you know if you could get on those you were you would sort of hopefully make it and every sort of like town and city would have an indie night probably on a Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday. So there was this circuit which gave people that access to at least play in front of complete strangers and not just people they've emotionally blackmailed to go and see them. Yeah. So in a way, it was, it was good. But, you know, because you, you, you in your book on Chapter 5, I think you do fanzines. Chapter 6 is the, the abuse of the press, isn't it? And um, and that must have been weird, you know, um, researching, you know, the press and reading those comments. Well, I really enjoy I, my background as a music, as a journalist, not as a music journalist, but my background as a journalist um, makes me very interested in the history of writing and journalism and all the rest of it. Um, and also being a teenager, you know, I have an, I had, sadly, I don't have them anymore, an enormous collection of enemies, melody makers and sounds, which I inherited from my older brother when he lost interest. And then I added my own collection on top. And it was definitely a fire hazard in a thatched house. But nonetheless, um, yeah, it was really interesting. That chapter was much, 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 the whole book actually was much longer. You know, it's nearly 500 pages as it is, but everyone will be relieved to know that I did. It used to be another 25% um, <laughs> longer altogether, but I did do some very harsh editing. <laughs> did you? 
Well, yeah. I, I think oh, it's, goodness. the book could have been so much bigger. And it felt awful because there's so many interviews in the book. There's like nearly 130 interviews, which is a hell of a lot of quotes from people. So you really have to whittle it down to the absolute really pithy ones from people. So some people aren't in there that much, which isn't in any way a slight of them. It's just that there's not enough, believe it or not, there's not enough room in a 500 page book to get all these people in. It's yeah, it's staggering. We should do volumes, volumes of them. Well, you could do, couldn't you really? And then, I mean, then there's an interesting bit because there's, there's, everything's very tribal in the Mm. 80s, probably in other decades as well, but who knows. Um, But let's let's stick with the 80s and 90s. So you do a nice little bit as well, chapter eight. This is on fashion as well, the Sarah fashion. Because I remember getting some of those press releases and being a little bit, I mean, you you know, the, the 80s, sticking with the kind of indie scene, you know, and obviously the Smiths were there and various other bands had a bit of an image. Whereas the Sarah, a lot of Sarah bands, Yes, I just I just remember that no one looked particularly happy on any of those press pictures, did they? <laughs> no, I'm looking at a picture of I'm looking at the uh, the fashion chapter right now, actually. And uh, it obviously starts because you can't mention Sarah Records without talking about anoraks. You just can't do it. And uh, so obviously it starts off talking about Anorak City, which is the Another Sunny Day song, which is illustrated by a picture of Harvey Williams, who was the man behind Another Sunny Day, uh, walking around London. And actually I'm looking at this now and I don't think he is wearing an Anorak in this picture. So we should... uh, that's, but there's also, I've just noticed behind him, a man peering into a dustbin. It looks like he's got um, a bag around his neck with a hole, you know, but it is amazing because he's got little round glasses, blonde hair. Yeah. He looks like the Milky Bar kid, doesn't he? You know, I saw a picture of Harvey this morning, actually, on Facebook, and he looks exactly the same. He really hasn't aged at all. Although he might have a you know a different pair of glasses now, but he looks exactly the same. Yes, this is true. So with yes, the image, got... the image of the of the fashion of Sarah, how does why did it have such a even though there's all these different bands, there was still this essence, wasn't there? I think there were different looks. There wasn't just the anorak look, and I don't think there were really that many anoraks. You had like the 60s throwback look and the jumble sail chic look. And the very much, you know, the sea urchins loved their fashion. Um, Robert Cooksey from the sea urchins was uh, someone I enjoyed talking to very much for the book. And he very kindly sent me lots of photos of the sea urchins to use, which were ones I hadn't seen before. And many of those are in the book, which I'm really pleased about. Um, But in his, he very kindly emailed me greatly detailed caption information for these photos, which were largely enormously detailed um, scripts about what he's wearing and where it came from and what it cost. And, you know, he's a man who really loves his clothes. Even now, his clothes are very, very important. And I respect that. You know, he's maintained he's found an interest and maintained it throughout his whole life. So that's a commitment. Um, but you had like there was this idea that everyone was had a lot sort of long floppy fringes and was wearing sort of stripy Breton tops. Well, no, I don't really think that happened so much. Although now I'm looking at a picture of Kathy from Heavenly and she is wearing a stripy Breton top and has a floppy fringe. But, you know, there yes. aren't that many of them. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a lovely, there's a lovely picture of, of um, Tallulah Golsh, isn't there? And they and they also look very chic and and happening i think with a lot of the bands there is i mean there is some people who who look like they're they're far too many dark colors and then there's others that do look quite sophisticated and cool and obviously sarah records did it appeal to us audience who were 
undergraduates going to university and discovering sensitive poetry? I think so. And they were discovering um, secondhand clothes shops because they didn't have much money. And so they liked the idea of these cheap and affordable seven inches that they weren't being told to buy on a seven inch and a 12 inch and a cassette single and then on a digipack CD. And then next week you buy part two of the CD. They weren't having any of that thrown at them. It was like one pound 50 for your seven inch job done. And then if you want to, you can nip to the local charity shop and you can buy yourself some old 60s clothes to wear because they're cheap and someone's chucked them out. I remember talking to Bridget Duffy from the Sea Urchins, who has always maintained an absolutely uh, exquisite appearance you know she runs still runs a vintage clothing shop you know she's very committed to her love of clothing and she's talking about how she loved going to jumble sales around the time of being in the sea urchins and how at that point you could buy like mary quant clothes in a jumble sale for like 50p because people didn't appreciate it then it's only now that we add all this value on like now if you look you know as i was saying you could buy a sarah record single for one pound 50 whereas now you look on discogs and they're like 200 150 pounds it's insane you add all this value on but what does it really mean this is true i mean no those fanzines are going for crazy money and then sort of the 80s and the most mysterious man of the whole 80s um i'm desperate to know who you're going to say who's the most yes and because he's disappeared but he was so everywhere you couldn't you couldn't open a cupboard without him being there but then so so (laughs) politically you do a chapter on (laughs) politics don't you so we have thatcherism then we have red wedge don't we and this is very big so a lot of those bands would have been probably grown up to the world of sort of red wedge and then there was a band called the redskins that we all love their album neither washington nor moscow and the and the famous lead singer i think his name is chris isn't it who's who just disappeared and never has been seen since who i just think whoever gets an interview with chris is going to be you know that will be gold so politics and and sarah how do these two marry up because because um yes most of the bands i would have said were left of center weren't they without being overtly billy bragg I think so. Although many of the bands, uh, when I spoke to them and asked them about this, would admit that they didn't necessarily, especially at the time, have any particular political uh, views of their own. But they felt um, led perhaps by Claire and Matt's own views, which were very about feminism and socialism and anti-capitalism and all that kind of stuff and treating people fairly and doing the right thing um and so they were happy to be led by that and I think a lot of the politics actually comes from Claire and Matt themselves you know in the fanzines that they wrote and the inserts that they wrote in you know in their stance you know that they weren't I know they did eventually but that they weren't going to put out 12 inches because they didn't want to rip people off that they were going to make the records affordable that they were going that they weren't initially going to put out albums although again they later relented on that but then they insisted they would never put singles on albums because they didn't want people to have to pay for the same music twice you know all these principles they'd have been a hell of a lot richer and probably more successful if they hadn't done this and if they had conformed to behave more like the mainstream music um, industry did but fair play to them that they stuck to their guns and they didn't and they still run a very very successful record label despite doing things their own way and on their own terms um, but the, some of the records like the Orchids of course famously had their anti-poll tax single which was uh, I believe the first ever anti-poll tax single in the UK which was a very very early Sarah release and they had a poster that came with it which had its um, slogan which I may or may not you may or may not want me to say on your show <laughs> 
but uh, but yeah, it was very much anti the, the poll tax. And the orchids themselves were very because because the, the poll tax came in to Scotland where the orchids were a year before it came in to the rest of the UK. Yes, this is so true. That's why they were concerned with that because it hit them first. And a couple of the orchids told me that, that they were involved with you know protests about this and going on marches and you know putting flyers through people's doors to let them know what was happening. So they obviously felt very seriously about this. And um, and of course, Forever People, who which was a one off band on Sarah, which was the project of Greg and Tim from the Razor Cuts, did a single which was raising money for um, Friends of the Earth. And there was a protest song about the awful, you know, state of the environment and climate change. And when I talked to Greg and Tim for the book, they were sort of saying, you know, you look at the lyrics to that song now. And it still stands absolutely true. You know, look at what's happening now. Look at what Extinction, Extinction Rebellion are doing. It's exactly the same arguments that they were having 30 years ago, which is slightly depressing, if not true. Yes. Um, it is true. But, um, yeah, so I think politics was definitely there. I think it came more from Claire and Matt than most of the bands, some of the bands, obviously. And I think, obviously, as the bands grew up and became adults as they are now in their 50s and so on, but at the time, you know, a lot of them were still teenagers themselves or in their early 20s and perhaps less concerned with these things then. Because I think, you know, when I was a teenager, I was less concerned with these things. It's that as you become older, that you become more aware of the world around you. Um, so, yeah, that's. But, yeah, those no, politics was obviously a very important part of it. Yes. That, yes, you covered. Because the other thing about Sarah is that it's it's got such a cult following overseas. I know there's mm. a few Sarah bands who are from mostly America, aren't they? There's a couple. There's a couple in America, a couple in Australia. There's the Harvest Ministers from Ireland. Um, I think that's it. I might have missed someone. But did you understand or, or get to the bottom of why they are so popular in places like Japan? No, but Japan or Japanese music fans do seem to really love indie pop. Yeah. Now, I'm friends with Simon Barber from the Chesterfields, who I've known since I was about 15 because we grew up in the same town and he used to come into the record shop where I worked. And I still speak to him and he still gigs with the Chesterfields in Japan and they get great responses over there. And I think Heavenly, you know, who re recently reformed for, for three one-off gigs <laughs> in May of this year. And I think they were offered a gig, in a, a tour in Japan on the strength of those gigs because people would love to go to it. I don't know what, what it is about Japanese music fans that really resonates with them about... Um, English indie pop I don't know what it is but they do love it yes absolutely and I know that was because it's interesting there was because you mentioned the precious recordings of London um, and then there was another one optic nerve recordings in Preston isn't there who's been putting out stuff and then it's fire stage fire station records in Germany and then another guy called I have no idea his name Cloudbury and he's also one of those people who who discovers these most obscure English British bands who've only probably put out a few you know singles and flexi discs and they put together these compilations mm. of bands you think that's amazing labor of love because though people like me really appreciate it 
you can't make a business out of this because there can't be more than 300 people in the world who'd want to buy it. But, you know, it's interesting how, um, yes, these kind I of fascinations. They're looking to make a business out of it. I think they're doing it. Like you say, it's a labour of love. They love the music. They want to share it with other people. And if you, as you say, if there's another 300 people out there somewhere who will pay, you know, a little bit of money towards the production costs of it, I don't know that anyone's looking to, you know, go on holiday or buy buy a new car off the profits from this but they just want to break even and share the music with other people i know and and we thank literally i don't know god god for those people <laughs> because frankly they do such a lot of work and you think wow that's amazing for those i mean yeah precious recordings is amazing because your book is so thorough isn't it you've got chapters and everything including recording studios which is yes. another which is another interesting chapter to get in in sconce with. How did you manage to sort of you put so much time into this book, haven't you? To to sort of go through so many little aspects. Mm. No no store, stone has not been turned over and examined from the underneath. So yes, recording. So what did you discover on this particular part? I discovered that if you are well, I I could make a top ten list. I won't go through a top ten list now. But I could do of if you are a new fledgling indie band on a budget and you are looking to put together your demo to send to a record label of the size of Sarah Records or if Sarah Records has said to you, OK, let's do a seven inch and you decide to go to a recording studio. I could tell you some top tips not to do. Most of these would be influenced by the sweetest egg <laughs> who decided um, rather than stick to Swansea where they lived. And just pop to one of the many perfectly adequate recording studios there, which would have served their needs very, very well at an affordable budget. They decided, nope, we're going to go to London. We're going to go to Islington. I walked past, they went to Vons in Islington because some other bands that they liked, much bigger bands had recorded there. I walked past Vons recently when I went to see Even As We Speak. Fun fact. Anyway. Um, and on the way there, so not only did they waste a load of money getting all the way up there and hiring a van and all the rest of it, um, what, they got one of their dads to drive them up there. And the van that they were in caught fire on the way up. And so they were on the motorway, the van caught fire. And there's this mental image of them kind of frantically getting all the kit out of the back of the van and hurling it to the side of the motorway before their drum kit and guitars and everything goes up in smoke. And then having to stand at the side of the motorway for ages while someone treks to a phone to ring the AA or whoever and then get another car. Anyway, so there was all that. And there's all the stuff about the graveyard, the graveyard shifts. And because, uh, you know, recording studios typically aren't that popular between about, you know, 11 o'clock at night and six o'clock in the morning because no one wants them. So you can get those shifts a bit cheaper. And it means that you don't get the great, you know, the number one gold star engineer. You get, you know, the trainee engineer. Yes. Perhaps, but it's all a lot cheaper. And so, um, again, sticking to to the sweetest ache. There's a story that Claire says in the book about she's gone along to this recording session that they're doing. And obviously it's, you know, five o'clock in the morning and they're all a bit sleepy. And she says that this record has this lovely kind of like sleepy nocturnal quality to it. And I don't know if that's just her in putting that on the record because she she was there and she knows that it was recorded in the middle of the night. Or if she genuinely hears that. I, don't, I can't remember what the record is now off the top of my head. But uh, I think that's quite interesting, yes. <laughs> this sleepy quality to a lot of these records that were made. And I think a lot of the records do have that kind of, not just Sweetest Egg, but a lot of them do have that kind of sleepy quality. And of course, a lot of the records, you know, Sarah became really linked to Ian Cat, who they originally found with the field mice. 
and because he lived around the corner from Bobby Ratton. And Bobby thought, yeah, that'll do. Engineer around the corner. Perfect. And then they really liked him and it got on really well. And Sarah really liked him. And so they started using Ian Cat for other bands. And um, yeah. And then, of course, Ian Cat went on to be this amazing engineer who worked with people like Kylie Minogue. So uh, that's rather exciting. Oh, and then the other really. Ian, Ian Carmichael, who was the the sixth Orchid, probably, because he ran the studio Toad Hall in Glasgow that the Orchids always used. And he crafted a lot of or helped craft a lot of the Orchids records. Yes. He must have, you must have enjoyed tracking people down and finding out what happened next, because I do. I've got very fond sort of memories of the hit parade who once yeah. put out a single on their own little label which was something like JSH. And I remember John Peel played it. It was um, See You in Havana. And um, he then read out the address to send it to, and you had to send £1.50 to Julian and get this little kind of the seven inch and a few photographs and a bit of blurb about it. And, um, and you know, then he went on to be this massive global PR person, didn't he? Which was... Um, yeah, he's, he's very much a man with two identities, Julian. And um, yeah, like, as you say, he has this phenomenally successful glamorous life in PR and I discovered actually when I was interviewing Julian for the book and um, as I mentioned earlier I used to work in London and I used to work for lots of these sort of glamorous lifestyle magazines celebrity magazines and I discovered that um, Julian had run Henry's house for a while the PR firm and that I'd gone to quite a few of these events and so our paths must have crossed unwittingly mm-hmm at some of these events that he'd helped put on many, many years ago. Um, And I just remembered these amazing little tiny, tiny, ridiculously small but delicious cheeseburgers that we were given at one of them, which (laughs) made an impression on me. They must have Uh, been quality cheeseburgers. Yes, but it's interesting that he (laughs) then wants to be on Sarah Records, doesn't he, during his... He loves, yeah, he loves music because, as you said, he put out um, a number of singles and records on his own label beforehand, and then uh, ended up on Sarah Records uh, through, well, I can't remember quite how that came about. But he, yeah, he ended up doing some records with Sarah. And yeah, he just loved that kind of dual personality. But he always says that when people in his PR world discover that he's also in this kind of like DIY indie band, they're always stunned and vice versa. And it is a really interesting juxtaposition. But again, for him, it works. And it's his outlet, I guess. It's his creative outlet. Yes, absolutely. And obviously there's there's kind of there's the sort of a few bands who have their kind of Fleetwood Mac moment, isn't there, within the Sarah stable, you know, the tricky bands who sort of fell out badly in relationships and stuff like that. How did you manage to navigate some of those moments? Did you have to be very sensitive and um, careful about what you include well, and not include? There's two parts to that question. So there's, I basically, I've been a bit of a coward about this. I'm going to hold my hands up to it. So there are a lot of, a lot of people who I spoke to are terrible gossips. Um, And I have heard over the last few years, a lot of stories of um, romances, let's say of one kind or another. And I have opted not to include these in the book because it just seemed too complicated and too potentially hurtful to various people. So it just seemed simplest yes. not to include it. Yeah. Um, and so that might be the coward's way out, but there you go. I will call myself a coward if that's what that's requiring. Um, the other strand to that question is about 
bands and there weren't very many but there were a couple of bands who had fallings out with each other or very occasionally with the label which I guess is inevitable um and again I've included where everyone's story largely uh, agrees with each other I have included it or where the majority have agreed but I've also said you know x and y say this but z disagrees and remembers it this way so I've tried to you know play play peacekeeper and put you know all sides across but there was one band who I won't mention now but who did fall out but everyone involved told me a completely different version of events and I have no idea who to believe and so I just haven't put it in at all because it just seemed too messy Yes, this is no. It's why it's why it is tricky, isn't it? Because there's a couple of interviews I've done with people, and it's like, God, I'm not sure this. I can never put this out because it's just too. And that wasn't the book I wanted to do anyway. I didn't want to do a book that upset anyone. I didn't want. Yes, because it's not that kind of world. It's not that kind of label. It's not that kind of music. So it was never my intention in any way, shape, or form to upset anyone or to get anyone's back up or to, you know, do anything like that. I literally wanted to write a book about a label that I was a fan of as a teenager and that thousands and thousands of other people were. And just to go, look, here's a celebration of this smart, funny, daft, silly, great record label that we all loved. Here it is in a book. Here's all the fun stuff. And that's what I wanted to do. I didn't want to have anything dark or mischievous or cunning or underhand in there that that's not me <laughs> oh, yeah. so, so when you were getting into the you know your the towards the latter part of the book and and putting it together how long did that that last bit take to sort of complete the project because it is like I said it is such a colossal piece of work and you've been so thorough did, was it quite exhausting to try and sort of bring it to an end um, the whole book from start to finish, from yeah, from start to now has been almost three years, but the book was largely finished being written about a year ago. So it was really about two years that the whole book, and that includes doing all the interviews, transcribing all the interviews, which was extremely tedious, I can tell you, um, and doing a lot of research and digging around and photo research and everything and, and doing, because obviously you can imagine with a book about Sarah Records, is not going to make my fortune. So um, I have done a lot of other paid work on completely different projects alongside it. So this has been sort of a hobby alongside other jobs. So this definitely has not been a full-time thing. Um, But I've been writing as I went along. So I didn't kind of do all the research and the interviews and then write. I started writing straight away and then kept fleshing and fleshing and fleshing out and there was a lot of chopping and changing and reordering of chapters and then you know blurring some chapters together so that three chapters became one and a lot shorter and you know focused more on one thing than another and a lot of changing of direction and a lot of this that and the other um but the last year of it has largely been um sort of production stuff and being distracted by family stuff in my own life and whatnot so um yeah really the book took two years I'd say from start to finish and I feel a little bit rusty on it because like I say it was finished really about a year ago um and then it's just sort of been sat on and then it was designed earlier this year and proofed and everything so I'm kind of it was quite nice to revisit it at the proof stages, having not read it for about six months, because it was quite nice to come back to it with fresh eyes. Yes, oh, it's quite. It's usually it. the thing, isn't it? You just say, "I just never want to look at a project." Well, and then... I 
did when we got the finished book back um a couple of weeks ago and I kind of thought and I always think this is my sixth book and I always think when a book comes back I cannot bear to look at this bloody thing ever again I'm sick of it and I did actually start reading it and I got about a third of the way through and then I shouldn't admit this on your podcast. I just thought I'm so bored, <laughs> <laughs> which I don't. I should hasten to add. I don't think that's a reflection. I hope it's not a reflection on the book. I think it's more a reflection on the fact that I have read it about a hundred times. Yes. And I think anyone who's read anything a hundred times, I think, is allowed to be a bit bored by it. Yes, I yeah no no I understand because um, it's often been years after doing a project that you. you there's a sort of strange sense sometimes, I'm not saying you would have this, but sometimes just like, not embarrassment, but just like, oh my God, it's just, it, there's so much that goes into something that you, you it's the only thing on your brain for that period of time that, and I know when people like Neil Young would talk about, you know, never listen to his records and, and you know, you think, yeah, I could imagine once you recorded it, you think, you know, I just know too much about that record. And I know filmed, some film directors have never watched their films because, again, they probably think that nearly destroyed me. I don't want to do it. I'm not saying you had quite the same experience. There's always but... that problem of how do you know when something's finished? And I never, ever know when something's finished. And when when I'm commissioned to write something as a journalist, it's slightly easier to know because you have a deadline and you have to submit something by two o'clock on Wednesday or whatever. And so if it's you know, it's 1.30 on Wednesday, it's finished because you have to send it off. But with a book and the deadline for this kept changing and changing and changing. And um, so how do you know when it's finished? I mean, I could very, very easily still be editing and editing and editing this now. As I said, I started rereading it re like an absolute idiot. I started rereading it after it was printed and I could very easily have a red pen in my hand and be changing things and you know slightly tweaking things and rewording things and I have spotted a couple of typos which is really painful. Yes. Um, not, not big things there's like there's a form and a from you know that kind of thing. Um, so <laughs> Not big things. And there's no one's name yet that I've noticed. But um, yeah, it's like, when would a book ever be finished? I don't think any book would ever be finished if anyone really was honest with themselves. Yes. So if someone was to say to you, what would be your top five Sarah records? God, everyone's going to ask you this, aren't they? Um, but what would you what would you say would, you know, for someone who hasn't come across the label and, and would say, come on, then give us the best five records that you would recommend Oh, that's a cheeky question. You needed to have given me notice. <laughs> you yeah. allowed me a bit of thinking time. Okay. Off the top of my head. Um, it's an obvious one, but you've got to say pristine, Christine, because if if the yes. person we're talking to or we're giving this list of five songs to is an absolute newbie to Sarah Records, then they've got to start at the beginning. And by that logic, they should also finish at the end, which would be the Shelley single reproduction is pollution which I think is quite interesting. And it kind of bookends the label quite nicely. Um, and then what else? I mean, Heavenly are my favourite Sarah band. That's probably yes. what I want to say. Um, I Fell in Love Last Night. That's a good one. That's a classic. I also really love Even As We Speak. And um, God, is it Anyone Anywhere? Is that the song with the... Is that the factory loud now or is that the water heater? Is that that one with that at the beginning? <laughs> I'm not sure. Anyone, anywhere. God, that's terrible of me. I never know the names of songs. I just kind of, it's awful. I put music on. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Do you know? No, I shouldn't tell you that. Um, and then, yeah, one more <laughs> song. 
Mm, God, this is tricky. You're going to have to take the pauses out when you edit this. You. Mm, God. <gasps> Do you know, I really loved Ivy. Wish You Would by Ivy. No one remembers Ivy, which I think is an absolute shame. I think the last 10 singles on Sarah are a little bit maligned, you know, Aberdeen and Ivy and Northern Picture Library. I think they're a little bit maligned, but I really, really love the two Ivy singles. So I'm going to pick Wish You Would. Oh, that's nice. That's very good. Because just for those listening, Matt then runs, goes and runs another little record label, doesn't he, for mm. a bit? which is, um, yes, another chap. What's it called? Shinkansen, like the Japanese bullet train. There you go. And did you did you sort of follow that? No, I didn't. Um, I remember getting, because Matt was, because people who wrote to Matt and Claire generally always had the same one of them writing yes. both of their letters. And it was Matt who wrote my letters on the whole. And I remember, and we built up quite a strong pen pal friendship and um yeah they were really long hilarious letters they were just fantastic and he sent me uh, I remember him sending me like the final Sarah newsletter with a note that just sort of said I wanted you to be the first to know dot 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 and then here's the the letter newsletter saying that Sarah's closing and I've since Oh, it's absolutely broken my heart. Over the years of researching this book, lots of other people have very, very kindly sent me scans and photocopies of their letters that they've had from Claire and Matt over the years. And I've seen several other letters that were sent to other people that said, I want you to be the first to know, dot, dot, dot. And it's almost as if Matt sat there, well, maybe Claire did this as well. Matt sat there one afternoon and just wrote hundreds and hundreds of these out and put them in with, it's almost like he might have done that. Who knows? Um, yeah, I know, I know. Uh, sorry, I've forgotten what I was going on. <laughs> Where did this start from? You, did you follow Matt in his next adventure? Oh, did I? No. And he did then send me a newsletter, the very first Shinkansen newsletter, and it kind of said something at the top. He'd written, um, uh, in, in case you're interested, or uh, th this is what's happening next. And I never ever bought anything on Shinkansen. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm more apologizing to Matt actually when I say that but no yes. I, I think I'd just kind of slightly grown out of Sarah by that point and I'd moved on to other things and I'd got like a new set of friends who were interested in a different kind of music and I just kind of moved in a slightly different direction and then I was off to uni and stuff and so I think that phase of my life had stopped for yes that's fair enough in the book because because Claire goes into finance and Matt yeah. you you allude to Matt's career what he does no one knows what Matt does <laughs> absolutely no like Claire has a very successful career in finance as you've just said um I don't know what Matt does Matt um he ran a, a magazine called Smoke for a number of years which was a sort of fanzine about London which had lots of essays and poems and photos and silly bits and pieces very mattish um about London and then he runs at the moment a little publishing company called Uncharted Streets, which are very detailed guidebooks to slightly unpopular parts of London, like Leighton and Deptford. Um, but yeah, I mean, maybe this is a, a, a multi-million pound generating industry. Yes. Uh, it could be. I don't know. Um, but uh, I, I don't know. No. I don't really know. 
but he, I guess I guess they would have had the, all the publishing, so they still get these royalties that they pay out. Well, every year um, they do every Christmas. They seem to do these massive spreadsheets tallying up what the different bands have owned. And of course, now there's all the, the online streaming, so Apple and Spotify and everything. Um, so they get all these different revenues. And of course, Heavenly went phenomenal on TikTok earlier this yes. year. So uh, that'll have some sums associated to it for them to sort out. And that seems to take a long time to sort out. And um, and I think Matt did the artwork for the new Blue Boy compilation as well recently. So they don't seem to have divorced themselves from the Sarah world at all. Um, and they Matt and Claire both still go to the gigs and um, go and see the bands when they're performing. And they still seem to be friends with lots of the bands. So they're still very much part of their lives as far as I can see. They must be boggled, actually, that what they did, you know, during that period is now being so well sort of um, researched. And I hope they're proud that this thing that they did 30 years ago started nearly 40 years ago. I hope that they're proud that they did this amazing thing that started from two fanzines and a collection of flexies and blossomed into these you know Sarah 100 largely 100 records but obviously had some fancies and a board game and bits and pieces in between and some albums but it like you say it spawned two books a film possibly another film numerous PhDs all kinds of you know magazine articles and blog posts and university essays and goodness knows what else um, podcasts masses and masses of stuff I hope they're really proud that this thing that they did has all this longevity and this legs and that people still love it. You know, if you go on a Sarah Records Facebook fan group, which has thousands and thousands of people in it, and they're still posting, you know, daily, everyone in these groups, and they get loads of interaction and um, the, the, the posts get loads of interaction and feedback and response and comments. So people still feel very passionate about it. And I love the fact that, um, people are still in these groups and every so often someone will pop up and they'll go, I'm just trying to collect, complete my collection of Temple Meads jigsaw postcards. Has anyone got the top left corner? And I'll do a swap. I've got two middle sections and there'll still be these trades going on, which I love that the, the idea of these people in their 50s and 60s still trying to complete their postcard jigsaw of Temple Meads. I think that's fantastic. That is stunning. So with all the people you asked, who were the people that are you asked and and or is that tricky? Would that be one that's yeah? Who who said no to being interviewed? Well, I probably shouldn't say. I should mean, I, 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 should... I well, wait a minute because I'm wait a minute, I'll hit pause. Then you would yes. So that's good. So Len, how does one get a hold of the book? <laughs> oh yes. How does one buy the book? I'm so glad you asked. Thank you. Um, it's published by a small independent Bristol-based publisher, which seemed very appropriate considering what we're talking about, called Tangent Books. So if you just go to the Tangent Books website and it's right there on the front page. And if you I'm not sure when this interview is going out, but the book is published on October the 16th. And so if you pre-order via Tangent, you get a signed copy, you get free UK postage and packing, and you will receive your book much earlier than if you order it from anybody else, including that large online retailer that everyone buys at, but we would much rather you didn't. And please support independent publishing and independent enterprises who pay their taxes. Um, so yeah, that's how you get the book. 
And there's also a launch due in Bristol on October the 11th, at which, which is so exciting, you may need to chop this out depending on when this goes out, at which Blue Boy will be reforming for the first time in decades. So Paul and Gemma, obviously Keith is no longer with us, but Paul and Gemma will be playing together Blue Boy songs for the first time in many, 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 many years. And I quote, Gemma is dead keen about this, which I just think is fantastic. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. A massive thank you to Jane for giving me the time for that. The book, which is titled, I mean, we probably mentioned it in the interview, but just in case, it's uh, titled These Things Happen, The Sarah Records Story. I will give you a link of how you can order a copy via their website. This has been the C86 Show. David Eastall, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. These have all been archived, the interviews. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Have a great week. Stay safe. Mm.